Now, this morning's preacher is Ramney Perez. He's not a stranger to many of you. He served as one of our pastors and was sent out and planted Fordham Community Church in September of 2019. They just celebrated their second anniversary. I got to be there. It's a faithful work. They appointed their first elder, who's back home now, preaching for Ramney. I love Ramney and Dodgy Perez. They are some of the most faithful, humble, and hospitable people you're going to meet on the planet, and I love to listen to Ramney preach, and I hope you will too. So Ramney, come and share God's word with us. You're at home, brother. Share as the Lord leads. Amen. Amen. I, uh, I do feel very much at home, and so I am very thankful uh, to be back. And uh, it's a unique joy this year because my wife was able to join me in being back, and I just love seeing her uh, get hugs and kisses and just be able to uh, get time with so many of the ladies that has brought great joy to my own heart. Uh, and I also want to say that um, as FCC uh, is about to gather, they're not yet gathering, uh, or I think we might be an hour different, so they might be gathering. I'm not quite sure how that works. Uh, they send uh, their greetings uh, from FCC to you all. We have been greatly blessed by uh, this body. Uh, I want you to turn to Genesis 39. Uh, I believe we'll also project it, but I like to read from uh, physical Bibles. I look young, but I'm kind of old sold, uh, and so I like physical Bibles. Genesis 39, uh, so that we would read from this chapter and we would benefit, Lord willing, from his word this morning. Uh, I asked my church to give me an amen uh, once they've arrived uh, at the passage. All it does is do two things. It gets you talking back to me and lets me know it's appropriate to start reading the word. So amen. amen. The word of God reads like this. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. 
But one day, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard and I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. And she told him the same story saying, the Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. And he gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Let's pray one more time. Father, you are the God who writes on tablets. Father, and as we read in 2 Corinthians 3, you delight to write on the tablets of human hearts. So Father, all I ask is that I would hide behind your word and that you would write on all of our hearts so that we would see with unveiled faces the glory of the Lord and be transformed into the same image. Father, I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to talk to you today from this passage regarding what to do in the midst of suffering. Not when you're out of suffering, not when you are done with the valley, but when you are in the midst of the valley. What to do when suffering and difficulties unexpected or expected, come near and you find yourself in the midst of them. Some of you may know, certainly my wife knows this, and my church has just increasingly gotten to know this, that I love basketball. I uh, love to watch basketball. I, I think I've made it my hobby just to every once in a while catch a good basketball game. Now, Part of that love of basketball actually extends to hearing podcasts about basketball. I know it's a little too crazy, but I, I, I do do this. And while listening to a podcast uh, of a former NBA player, that is a player who has now retired, um, he, he began to describe something that really caught my ear, caught my eye, and I, I, just, I just couldn't ungrapple it because it was so interesting. He's retired now, which means he has a lot of hours on his hands. And he described sort of what he's been doing uh, during this time of retirement. 
He's described some of the things you would expect. He's spending time with his family, with his kids, and just enjoying the time that he gets to now have at home. But he also described something else that he's taken up that just kind of a little bit weird. He described how every year, once a year, he, along with some other friends, will engage in doing something, a feat that they've never done before. Now, there's several rules to the thing that they have to, sort of the activity they have to engage in. One, uh, they have to commit to doing something they've never done before that's really difficult out in nature. They can't have better than a 50% chance of actually completing it, and they can't die. (laughs) Obviously, their wives are very happy about that part. And so he described the first instance that he engaged in this sort of uh, activity. And, and, and the task was paddleboarding over 30 miles in the ocean. He described how he's never been on a paddleboard. He described how some of the other guys had been on paddleboards, or at least on boards, because they were from California. He's not from California. He's never touched a board before. And he described what it was like to begin to do that particular feat. He described how, you you know, they're all in this boat. It took a three-hour boat ride to get to the place from where they would launch off. And and after arriving there, he's like, this is going to be such a waste of a day. We're just going to just go on this water, try our best, and then, you know, we're just going to go back. And it's just going to be, you know, a day that I'm going to forget, a boring day. I feel like I wasted my Saturday. I should have just spent it with my kids. They set out, and about 100 yards just out from the water, he's a, he's a professional athlete. He just begins to feel the pain. He's, he's never been on a paddleboard before. And he, and he describes how all these other guys just begin to move way ahead of him. I mean, just like they're moving in front of him, and he's like, I'm, I'm, I'm just behind. And, and he's swinging, and he's just, you know, paddling, and one arm begins to hurt, his legs begin to hurt, he starts to bleed from his toes just from standing and digging in. And, and before he knows it, he's like, what in the world is happening? I'm in pain in every angle, everything hurts. And, and, and he's just like, I'm not going to finish this. He looks up, he can't see an end. He looks back, I'm too far gone now. Like, what do I do? I'm in the midst of this water. I'm not sure what exactly to do. I'm just in so much pain. Then he begins to realize, if I move my hand just a little bit, I feel a little bit of relief, not as much pain. And he just says, you know what? I'm just going to focus on doing the right stroke every time. I'm just going to move the paddle the right way every time. I'm not looking up. I don't know. I'm not gauging how far I am anymore. I'm not looking back. I'm just going to make sure I am doing the right form and the right structure and the right movement every single time. Before he knows it, he's caught up to them. Eight hours later, he arrives at the beach with his wife and his kids waiting for him. And I think that's a beautiful illustration of what God calls you and I to do in the midst of suffering. In the midst of suffering, what we are called to do is to make sure that we walk righteously and in obedience, trusting the sovereign hand of our God. So I have two points this morning. I have two points this morning. You, as God's blessed people, are 
and called by him to walk righteously in suffering. Second point, when you walk righteously in suffering, you are connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. The thing about suffering is that it tempts you to find a justification that is some kind of grounding for doing what is wrong or for giving up. And this passage actually begins to illustrate to us a beautiful example of a man who found himself in the worst kinds of suffering and yet was helped by the Spirit of God to actually walk righteously in it. It's interesting, the passage begins, verse 1, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites and he had become, uh, bringing him there in Egypt, verse 2, in the middle of being a slave, passage tells us the Lord was with Joseph. I actually think part of the main point of this passage is the reality that Joseph is blessed by God, that that Joseph has the ongoing blessing of God's presence with him wherever he finds himself. The passage actually starts by telling us over and over again that the Lord was with Joseph, that it was evident that the Lord was with Joseph, and then it finishes again by reminding us, and the Lord was with Joseph. The main point, sort of by sandwiching in uh, this reality, is God was with him. God was with him physically. It emphasizes it. And the blessing of God on his life in this passage actually causes it so that his master notices it and it begins to open doors for him while he finds himself in this situation. God's presence with Joseph actually is the greatest treasure and gift that God gives his people. God's presence with his people is a covenant privilege. Joseph is a descendant of Abraham, whom God had called from a foreign land and said, I will be with you, I will bless you, I will make of you into great nations, and I will make your descendants as many as the stars that are in the sky. You just go and follow me. And, and, and this blessing that Abraham experienced, a particular blessing of the God of the heavens establishing a covenant relationship with him, gets passed on to his children and to their children's children. And so what Joseph is experiencing is actually part of the covenant blessing that was first given to Abraham. It's an amazing thing to think about, that the best thing God gives his children is his presence. It's the blessing of him being with us. There's a song that uh, we Christians tend to sing. uh, I remember I learned it when I was very young. Uh, Father Abraham, as many sons... There you go. And, and what? And I? And so are you. The, <laughs> right before service, uh, Ryan was joking how... Uh, anyways, let me, let me not go there. <laughs> See, part of the reality of what it means to be a Christian is that we have inherited the covenant blessings of Abraham. The Bible tells us that those who share a similar faith to Abraham 
also through the gift of the Holy Spirit have received the covenant blessings in Abraham. What that means is God's presence is the greatest gift he has given you in Jesus. That he is with you and it is clearly sort of tangibly evident in our lives, even as the Lord has said, I will always be with you even to the end of ages when he sealed us with the Holy Spirit. So, so in the midst of the situation that Joseph finds himself in, he knows that the Lord is with him and it is evident and it is evident to us that we have God's presence with us because it is a covenant privilege that's not tied to the circumstances we find ourselves in. It's so evident that it actually caused his master to notice because everything that Joseph touched turned to gold. Did you notice it? It's like he became a successful man, verse 2, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master and his master saw that the Lord was with him Why? Because the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. It's like he entrusted him with the smallest thing, just went perfectly. He entrusted him with something bigger, went great. It was was evident to his master, who was a pagan man, that God was with him because God was causing everything he touched to turn to gold. And so so it caused him to to find favor in his eyes and to ultimately do what seems unthinkable, to entrust everything in his house to him. I don't know if, this is, if you've thought about this, but Joseph is a slave. I mean, he has every reason the minute he gets the opportunity to seek his freedom. Why would you entrust this man with so much uh, in stewardship in your home? And yet it was an evidence in this passage, as we often see in the Old Testament, that God was with his people by causing them to flourish. Not only was it evident that God was with him because he helped him to flourish and because he caused everything he did to flourish, it was evident because he became a blessing to his Egyptian master. See, part of this flourishing of everything that is occurring through Joseph in his master's house, verse 5 tells us is because Joseph was there from the time that he made him an overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And I think what's happening here is this theme that only crescendos and grows throughout the entire uh, book of Genesis, uh, a theme that was first beginning to be introduced in the life of Abraham, that the children of Abraham would become the mediating source of blessing to the nations. That is, that it would go from the chosen covenant people of God, and they would become a source of mediating blessing to those that they would interact with, increasingly so those that did not know their covenant God. And so when everything that Joseph touches uh, becomes to be a source of blessing to this man, I think what you and I ought to be thinking about is the reality of how in the midst of the circumstance he's in, God is blessing him to actually make him a blessing. So we see that Joseph is blessed by God because God is with him, because God causes him to flourish because God makes him a blessing. But he does so while he's in deep suffering. 
I think to understand just the kind of suffering he's in, we have to kind of span it back a little bit. I don't know if you remember, but Joseph had these dreams when he was a young man. He had been given these dreams uh, that he would be elevated and, and that his brothers would bow down before him. He had been given these dreams that his father and his mother was not there at that point, but representative, his mother, uh, would, would also bow down before him. And so he had been given these dreams that he, he was so excited to share that he would go and tell his brothers, he would go and tell his father, and they didn't take too kindly to that. They were like, you must be bugging. You're, you need to chillax. You're not about to be elevated above us all. And so their jealousy is actually what makes him to find himself in this situation. But, but he, he felt revealed by God. Dreams often in the Bible are a source of revelation from God's hand. He, he, could, he had reason to believe God was going to cause his life to go on this increasing sort of crescendo up until he was on the top of the mountain. And suddenly and out of nowhere, he finds himself a slave in a foreign land betrayed by his brothers, sold off. Can you imagine just how disorienting and hard that would have been? When you think life ought to go one way. I've been walking well. I've been doing what I thought was right. I've been serving God faithfully. I've been, I've been walking after him. I've been going to church. I've been praying. I, I did the things that I, I was supposed to be doing. I, I looked in Proverbs. I tried to live wisely. Why has everything gone wrong? That's where he finds himself. And what I want you to notice is this tension He's blessed, exceedingly so, and he's literally in the middle of the worst moment of his life. See, because what God does when he blesses you in the midst of suffering is that he allows you to thrive through it in obedience to him. God does not, as, a, as an evidence for the thriving, immediately always cause the difficulty to be removed. But what he does do is that he allows you to experience his presence with you while you walk through the valley in such a way that he empowers and he helps you by his grace to actually thrive through it by walking faithfully in it. So God's blessing on him was not to make him avoid the difficulty or the test of faith, but to enable him to walk through it faithfully and to become a blessing to others in the midst of it. The consistent emphasis on this passage that the Lord was with Joseph and that he showed him steadfast love and that he is his covenant child and has received the covenant blessings of Abraham and that he will never leave him and that he will be with him regardless of the circumstances and that he would make him a source of blessing to those around him did not immediately remove the difficulty but sweetened the experience of God being with him in the middle of it.
Part of what I love about this passage is the ways in which it reminds us that the prosperity gospel is not a true gospel. That to believe in God and to do the right thing does not always mean the removal of the thorn and of the difficulty. And what we should ask God, what your prayer ought to be in the middle of suffering, it ought to be a prayer to say, God, help me to faithfully and joyfully walk faithfully through this trial, however long you will give it to me. Would you help me to walk knowing that you are with me, you have not abandoned me? Would you, would, you, would you stay with me in such a way that you cause my heart and my faith to endure strong leaning on you and make me even a blessing to others in the midst of this suffering? That ought to be the prayer of the Christian's heart in the midst of suffering. But what's kind of crazy about this passage is that the suffering only compounds before it eases. Verse 6, we begin to notice a shift in this passage. He's blessed. He's elevated in the midst of being a slave. And then suddenly, things just get worse. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and in appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. So he, he's just trying to do what was right in the middle of uh, the situation he finds himself in. And suddenly temptation comes on in unannounced and uninvited. Uh, the, the master's wife begins to look at Joseph and the passage tells us in good Hebrew that he was, happened to be a good looking man. You know what I'm saying? He was, he was an attractive brother. And so, and so, and so the, the, the wife begins to look at him and say, you know what I'm saying? He's an attractive brother. <laughs> so she begins to do this increasing sort of tactic of trying to lure him in. Says that she cast her eyes on him and just invited, hey, come lie with me. But he refused. And he told her, hey, I can't do that. Your husband has entrusted me and put a lot of trust in me. Plus, this would be a great wickedness. And I want you to notice how the temptation, I, when I remembered this passage before rereading it several months ago, I remember this as one instance. You know, she just comes in and tries to like grab him and he runs off. But, but did you notice the sort of day by day nature of the temptation? It wasn't something that it was just a once instance, we run away and it's all good. He had to live in this mug day by day. And the temptation here in this passage, I don't believe is merely to satisfy an illicit sexual desire. I think it's also a trial of faith. Can you just imagine being in his shoes? He finds himself in a foreign land, having been sold by his brothers. He finds himself with every reason to justify turning on the God of his fathers. Does he not? I mean, he's in a foreign land, 
This God, if you were good and able to bless him and be with him, surely would have kept him from this trial. Surely he would have protected me and kept me from this. Why should I uphold any obedience and righteousness to him now that I find myself in the midst of this situation? I'll just forget him. He finds himself with every reason to justify giving in to any illicit desire, doesn't he? And so it's striking, and and it ought to be striking to us, that when we see his response to her, we are seeing him properly still placing faith in the God of his fathers. He is still acting and viewing the world through the lens of the revelation of the God of the heavens, rather than abandoning it and saying, I'm just going to become like these people here. Because suffering makes you ask the question, what's the purpose of still going on? What's the purpose? If it isn't working out, why continue doing it? So the temptation is also one of faith. Do I believe God's word and his promise more than the promise of sin? And his response is striking in light of this. Verses 8 and 9, he says, He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He refuses, like I just said, for two reasons. It would be a great violation of the trust of his master, and it would be a great wickedness and sin against God who he still believes and trusts in. The the strong language that he uses to describe the sin is actually very instructive because part of what temptation seeks to do in your life and in our lives is to actually pull off a magic trick. It's It's to somehow get us to believe that sin is less evil, less gross, less dirty than it is, and make it less uh, less uh, uh, appalling so that it would become more attractive. So make it less dangerous so that it would become something to be desired. He describes it as a great wickedness and a great sin against God. Part of the reality of navigating through seasons of difficulty and hardship and the inevitable temptations that will come in the midst of them in your life to justify disobedience that you know is wrong is that it'll make you feel like you're right in doing it. You have every reason to. Look at what I'm going through. It's okay for me to react like this. Look at what I'm experiencing. People would understand. And part of fighting that is learning to cultivate your heart's affection so that you would be able to, being transformed by the word of the Lord, also assess sin through the lens of God's own eyes. Isn't that what he does? He says this is a great wickedness and a sin against God. Why? Because he's viewing it from a godly perspective with the eyes of God himself. And so I think... The temptation is not only one of fulfilling a sexual desire, it's one of faith. And the temptation just escalated. 
She took the opportunity when she found him alone to forcibly try to seduce him. It had just been an invitation. And then all of a sudden, she finds him alone in the house. The passage says, none of the men, verse 11, were in the house. And so she says, this is my opportunity. And she goes and grabs him sort of forcibly. And now he finds himself in an instance where the only escape is to run. Part of the nature and the reality of suffering and the temptation that comes to us in suffering is that it, not only is there a justification to do what is wrong, but there's also justification to pull back, isn't there? To say, I'm going to just be by myself. I don't need to be with the people of God. I don't need to be in deep community. I'm really struggling. I'm really suffering. Let me just sort of not have to deal with anybody in this moment. But there is where you're most vulnerable to sin. There is where you find yourself most vulnerable to attacks of the enemy. And in isolation is where the enemy who is on the prowl and on the hunt desires to destroy your faith. All sin is evil and to be run away from, but there are some temptations that you do not trifle with. That you put no confidence in the flesh and you just run. Obedience in the midst of suffering does not always bring an immediate reward for it. Joseph experienced a spiritual victory in this moment. And yet he finds himself falsely accused because of it. Passage, the Bible tells us that it's better to suffer for doing right, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And yet he finds himself having walked and obeyed and, and honored the God of his fathers. And yet he finds himself not with alleviated suffering, not all of a sudden with a sense of, I'm victorious, I defeated sin. Instead, he finds himself accused, thrown in a prison. Friends, we don't walk in obedience for an immediate physical reward. We walk in obedience because we fear the God who saved us and we know of the eternal rewards. Amen. Joseph, for the second time, is stripped of his clothing. He's sent into captivity, lied on by others, and his clothing is used as justification for the lie against him. This is the second time that this brother has experienced this. And suffering can increase when you're walking righteously. Suffering can increase when you're more righteous than those next to you. You know, sometimes the thinking actually goes like this. Well, I'm doing what's right. They don't seem to be doing as well, so it's going to go well with me. But then all of a sudden, you're the only one suffering. And they seem to be doing good. One of the hardest trials for this past year for, for us has been seeing a dear friend um, seemingly coming to the end of, of his, making a shipwreck of his faith. And I think what's happened is something like this. I did what was right. I did better than others. I worked harder. I was more obedient than others. 
I served God. I believed reformed doctrine. I held on to what I thought was living righteously. And I'm still unhappy. This gospel thing doesn't work. I think we're experiencing what I think is an exodus and a sifting from the Lord's hand among many in my generation and younger generations because they're asking the wrong question. They're asking, does it work? We're forgetting to ask, is it true? And suffering will often make you ask that very same question. And so if you're asking yourself that question this morning, listen, the Lord saved me out of deep anger and deep sexual perversion. It works. But that's not the first question. The truth always works. Yet in the midst of suffering, when we walk faithfully and righteously in our suffering, when we don't check our faith at the door and justify ungodliness because of suffering, you are connected to Jesus Christ. When we walk in righteousness, in our suffering, we are connected to Jesus Christ. And we get and enjoy greater assurance that just as we share in his suffering, we will also share in his glory. Philippians 1, 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. It's a privilege to have been saved by Jesus, called unto him to have been forgiven, caused to be born again, but also to suffer for his sake. That's how the passage ends. 1 Peter 3.17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Romans 5, 3-5 tells us that suffering and, and difficulty produces endurance, an endurance that ultimately ends in hope. Why is it that during suffering, when we walk in righteousness, we actually get to be connected to Jesus? Well, one, because when we walk in righteousness in our suffering, we also give evidence to the fact that the only thing awaiting us at the end is glory. Man, Philippians 1.29 is crazy. It says it is, it is granted to you. Granted, not only to believe, but to suffer. That's the kind of thing that you're like, you know what, I'm good, right? I'll take the next gift. You got the happy, easy one? I'll take that one instead. And yet it's a privilege when united to Jesus to suffer because it makes the coming glory all the sweeter. Because it makes the joy incomparable with the suffering. Many of you have experienced, as the Bible would often describe this, just the reality of, of labor and giving birth. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pain that is intense and yet momentary. Because immediately, I remember when, when my wife gave birth to my son, Navi, it was pain and crying, and then it was, you're here, <laughs> and joy. 
And let me tell you, if you are in Jesus, regardless of the kind of suffering that he has allowed to be for your life, that will be true of you. You will say without any hesitation or doubt, the joy is better and the suffering was worth it. So do not give up now. He ends up in jail, seemingly in a further pit. But God always has a purpose for the trials he allows to come into our life. See, because God used the suffering of Joseph for his own self-glorifying purposes. His plan was ultimately to use Joseph and his suffering and his difficulties to place them in the right position so that he would become the source of salvation, not only to many of the Egyptians, but to the very people of God themselves. He, 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 through his suffering, was used by God to be a source of salvation. By salvation, I do not mean eternal. I mean a temporal source of salvation so, so that they would be rescued from death and difficulty. And God blessed him while he was in jail and God blessed him in his difficulty, but God used for what you can say are missional purposes, as is for God's self-glorifying purposes, the nature of his suffering. He was always in the hands of a sovereign God whose plan was not only uh, to, to do him good and restore his joy, but to use him in his suffering. When you suffer righteously, you are connected to Jesus. Because there is also another one greater than Joseph who suffered righteously. There is one who suffered while being innocent, who also was betrayed by his brothers, who also in his suffering was then elevated and became the source of salvation to all who would run to him. And his name is Jesus. And when you and I suffer, we are also living out the realities of his glory in our lives because he was victorious over death because through his death, he became the source of salvation to all who would believe because in his death, he died for sins. And when he was raised, he was raised for our justification. Oh, I just, I plead that the Lord would help us to walk righteously in suffering in the valley so that when we're out of it, we can testify to his goodness. So I got three applications and I'm out of your hair, probably over time anyways. In your suffering, do not become self-centered. Joseph was used by God to become a blessing to others. And part of temptation in suffering is to focus solely on you. One of the greatest tools you have that you do not realize to get out and to thrive through suffering is to just start serving somebody else. In your suffering, do not become self-centered. In your suffering, do not forget the grace of Jesus Christ Whose suffering is why you're blessed? Sometimes you haven't responded well to suffering, right? 
And part of the beauty of what it means to be a Christian is that you are only acceptable to God because of his death and resurrection. And so his grace covers you and invites you even when you didn't respond optimally and calls you to walk in obedience now. Finally, in your suffering, do not give up walking in practical faithfulness. Do not give up the normal means of grace. Practice godliness as he has called you to. Build habits of godliness that you do not break during suffering. Remember the NBA star who's now retired who just focused on doing what was right, just the, the right stroke, just doing the right thing right now. I'm not, I don't know when I'm going to get out of it. I can't go back. I'm just going to do what's faithful right now. And when the Lord takes me to the shores, I will praise him for it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would make of each of us young, old, been walking with you for years or just began, that you would make each of us, by the help of your spirit, through whatever trial you have allowed to befall our lives, able and helped by your grace to walk in obedience to you so that we would taste greater assurance of your salvation so that we would know glory is coming so we would know the privilege that it is to suffer for jesus sake and that at the end father you would get all of the glory and all of the praise and that your victory over death being united to you would be the very thing we enjoy on that day when you come back for us Father, I pray that you would help us. If there's anyone here who is doubting and struggling, Lord, that you would help them, that you would snatch them out of the fire, that you would put people in their lives to have mercy on them in doubt, that above all, you would help us as you are able to keep us unto the end unscathed for your glory. Father, I ask you these things. We ask you these things in the precious name of Jesus.